Hello, I'm Karsten Knox. This is Flaw in the Iris, the film podcast. This month on the podcast, I'm asking cinephiles and filmmakers about their picks for the best films of the 2010s. On this episode, I speak to Jesse Hiltz about his choices for the best science fiction films of the past decade. Jesse is a former teacher of science fiction and the history of science and a filmmaker. His short film, This Book Tells the Future, will launch this spring. We recorded in Spring Garden Place in Halifax, hence all the strange futuristic mall sounds in the background. I ask you to share with me your picks for the best science fiction of the past 10 years. And by science fiction, we should sort of define our terms. I mean, there's fantasy, there's adventure, there's blockbuster sci-fi, there's independent sci-fi, but really we're talking about hard sci-fi. Films that use science fiction concepts to forward an idea. There's big budget versions of this and there are micro budget versions. And I think based on what I know about you, I suspect there's a mix of the two in your list. Yeah, there certainly is, and I would say that there might be some entries on this list that might make people think, well, that's not really hard science fiction. And if people have heard interviews with me on the show before, I usually take uh, the theme uh, of a film pretty seriously. And so some of these, I think, the theme deserves to be highlighted as like a good example of a science fiction film from the last decade. So there will be instances in which like they lean a little less on the hard side, a little bit more on more the stylistic side. But for the purposes of our discussion, for instance, Star Wars is not being considered as as part of this science fiction category. We, I think Karsten and I would think of it as more like a space fantasy or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think you're right. So I I think it's important to note a couple of things in terms of context from the 2000s. And uh, because the 2000s were a while ago now, we tend to forget that the 2000s effectively began with uh, two different films. And this is the way that uh, I heard it described once. In, in the late 1990s, science fiction was really focused with the relationship between the individual and the structures that we lived in and so you got so like the matrix would be a perfect example of people feeling feeling oppressed in the late 90s by the system that they're in and looking for a way to rebel from that 9-11 happens and categorically changes what is being expressed by science fiction there's a lot less of the kind of the system is bad and we have to fight against it, and things become a lot more about the internal psychology of people and the moral gray areas. So I'm just going to name a couple science fiction films that are very popular in the 2000s. District 9, Children of Men, Donnie Darko, Primer, Avatar, of course, Moon, which is still about a system, but it's very morally gray, AI, Sunshine, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. You can see there that there's an interest in still exploring classic scientific themes, but there's more move towards social commentary, and there's a lot more um, focus on the psychological, realistic psychological aspects of it. In the 2010s, I would say it's not that there's a categorical shift in any way, but I think that there's been a lot more interest in producing science fiction films as a way of tackling different subjects because science fiction is often used to create some distance between um, what we, how we want to talk about a certain kind of social issue and 
in a way where it's not immediately relatable to our lived experience like there's enough distance between the concepts and how we live them in our everyday life that we can kind of think of them a little bit differently okay can you give us an example uh so for example uh one of the film one of the films that's definitely on like my sort of top 10 list here is ex machina that film is a perfect example of what science fiction in the 20 good science fiction i think in the 2010s is up to which is taking a classic theme uh, which is basically the Turing test, like how can you tell if a, uh, a machine has consciousness? And we've seen this story play out innumerable times, and we've seen like basically rip-offs of 2001 a lot of times. And what was brilliant about Ex Machina was uh, that it was able to set us up to assume a story was going to go to a certain place, make us really believe that story that we'd already heard before, so it, so, it, so it stays true to that original theme, tells it better than it had been told previous attempts, and then basically turns it around on us so that we can, again, you know, using tropes, familiar tropes, tropes of science fiction, basically inverting these tropes so that suddenly we have to think about, whoa, like, what can science fiction do to other kinds of stories? So just in particular to Ex Machina, that film basically uses the male gaze in a way to lull an audience into a certain relationship with this AI protagonist. And, that, and then by the end of it, basically shows the protagonist and the viewer how they were able to seduce us. And it, it's not only a commentary on AI, but it's also a commentary on cinema, right? And um, to use Martin Scorsese's famous phrase, cinema, <laughs> it kind of shows us why science fiction films tend to be films that get discussed in terms of um, our everyday experiences and our everyday discourse more than maybe other kinds of genre yeah. films. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, that subject uh, and that film itself which I really loved, and it was on my top ten as well, of just, like, top ten films of the, uh, of the whole decade, not being exclusive to science fiction. But I really loved it because it did. It explored those broad themes that science fiction explores so well, which is what does it really mean to be human? How do you define humanity and human-like characteristics? Uh, it also had a few things to say about the relationship between men and women. A lot of these specially... Uh, Hollywood-made films are dominated by male filmmakers and storytellers, and I don't know if it escaped all of the the sort of sexist tropes. I've had some conversations with some people who felt that Ex Machina did still have some sort of systemic, baked-in sexism in it, but I, I liked the way it addressed some of that, some of those, like, you know, male genius kind of things that we've come to accept and... And it kind of needled those things. It let some of the air out of it. Yeah, I think that that's right. And and science fiction is a genre that, despite how it can play with its tropes, ultimately has a certain kind of DNA. And uh, in the same way that a Western... Like, there's certain things you can't take out of a Western and have it be a Western anymore... And science fiction is that kind of a genre. And it, it struggles a lot with gender stereotypes because science fiction protagonists 
had often been a certain kind of character. And so, like, we've talked about Ad Astra before, and that immediately comes up where, like, the masculine science fiction protagonist is part of the dialogue of the film. And you can still go into that film and say, okay, well, you know, if you're thinking about uh, a male protagonist's role in the genre, why aren't there more speaking female roles? I would say that filmmakers tend to, in the 2010s, take two approaches to how to deal with basically the fact that the marketplace is more socially conscious than it was before. One is to take a theme and try to explore it in the way that Ex Machina does. And then I would say that like the more uh, Disney side of things is to basically like show you symbols explicitly to signal that they are conscious of a certain kind of politics but not in a way that necessarily always has anything to do with the theme of the story. So I would make a distinction between those. Like, science fiction films that take their themes seriously, like Ex Machina, you might be able to look at them and say, yeah, but they still got some of the content parts wrong, or the, like the uh, iconography wrong. Um, but then something like Disney will come along, and they'll give you a lot of iconography, which signals a certain kind of politics but then the actual like overall story is just status quo stuff as per usual so you definitely get these two tracks in science fiction in the 2010s where you know before I think in the 2000s it was like a little bit more blended but now that social values are a part of the marketplace that there's a social values marketplace some might say that science fiction has become a real interesting place to see the choices people make to promote the kind of science fiction that they think is either profitable or like true to the art form. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I can see where you're going there. I, I probably an argument to be made and it's a solid one is that until more women are writing and directing science fiction movies, uh, we're going to get sort of variations on the same themes over and over again. Uh, but, uh, I, I wanted to this, I don't know if this is a clumsy segue, but I know that Blade Runner 2049 would be on your list. Uh, am I right? Uh, yes, you you are right. Uh, <laughs> and that yeah. was a film I really enjoyed. Um, I talked about it recently on one of my other episodes of this podcast because it wound up being on my list and on, and on someone else's list. Um, but I also struggled a little bit with the way that I don't think the film solved some of its gender issues, its male gaze issues. Um, and, or if it did, I wasn't sure if I entirely grasped what it was trying to say. I still consider it one of the great science fiction films of the decade for what it was able to achieve in terms of furthering the ideas of the original. And I guess this also brings forth that conversation about sequels or legacy sequels and where Blade Runner 2049 fits into all of that. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the whole legacy sequel thing because... Um... I want to contrast a film like Blade Runner 2049 to a film like Tron Legacy. Because Tron Legacy came out just at the beginning of the decade, and it really signaled uh, a certain path that I think basically markets were expecting science fiction to go down, which is that um, the 2000s were basically defined by how do we use computer-generated imagery in films in a way that's like most effective. And I think the 2010s had solved a lot of those initial problems. And so there was basically, you know, is everything going to look like Avatar? Is everything going to, like, have these very controlled stylistic environments? 
Uh, and so Tron was perfect time for Tron to come back, right? And if you watch that film, it's a gorgeous film. Um, but if you, of course, then apply a political lens to it, it's, it's like pretty bad. But it's also clearly not its interest to be thinking about um, gender politics. And uh, one of the interesting things with the internet in the 2010s and how it's affected science fiction is that like science fiction before catered to often like small groups. So these niche audiences. And now because of the internet, everyone is expected to join into the conversation about these things. And you often do find criticisms uh, where people say, it didn't do well here, or it didn't do well here. And it's interesting then to compare something like Tron Legacy to Blade Runner, which came out at the end of the decade, because, you know, I would say arguably 2049 did a much better job with its gender politics, but it's also not a story about gender politics. So it's a story about, it's basically about human nature writ uh, more broadly. And in that case, it's like the gender politics of the environment that the story takes place in can often be mistaken for like the gender politics of a utopian vision that a filmmaker ought to have. And I think there's still a tension there in terms of like what people have been jokingly calling the discourse of recently. Um, how do you deal with these kinds of films? So I would say, you know, to, to kind of pivot to a different aspect of the legacy sequel part, what Blade Runner 2049 was able to do do, and which is why I think it's like the sequel of the last decade, is it again, it's able to take the themes that people loved about the original Blade Runner film. It took the tone and it took the stakes, but it sets those stakes and those themes in a world that's actually categorically different from the world of the initial film. Like, things have happened between Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 that make it a completely different civilization, in a sense. And the fact that those films resonate so well together and that Denis Villeneuve was able to, like, basically give us an instant classic. One magazine had said that the 2010s was, like, the decade of Denis Villeneuve. And, you know, the first film is, is Arrival on your list. Arrival is on my list, and like it, my long list, which is about thirty-five films, heavily dominated by screenplays by Alex Garland and films by Denis Villeneuve. And like twenty twenty, the big film that I'm anticipating is is Dune, of course, right? So it's ironic that somebody like Denis Villeneuve would be like the master adapter because we see a lot of people who are like famous for adapting science fiction novels, but like he, I think, has had a real presence on the visual language of science fiction in the last half of the decade, for sure. Mm. Well, uh, I'm interested in knowing what else is on your list and what other themes do you think uh, have come to the forefront in the past uh, 10 years? I'm gonna begin with a film that I think you and I are both a big fan of, 2013, Under the Skin. Uh, this is a science fiction film that is more parable than hard science fiction. What it's interested in is the alien perspective, if I can say it, where uh, the way that the camera work occurs, the music, uh, Scarlett Johansson performance, the way that they used hidden cameras to get these authentic performances from humans. And I say humans there very intentionally because the film basically trains you to look at humans like aliens. And that, I think, is basically 
further developing a theme that you would get in the 2000s was something like District 9. Instead of the who's the real monster, which can feel a little pat, something like Under the Skin is able to show what humanity is like in its beauty and its ugliness, but it tries to present it almost through a valueless lens. There's an infamous scene on a beach with a child and a dog and a riptide, and it's presented with almost no moralizing judgment. And like this kind of alien view is interesting because the story is ultimately also about empathy. And so I think that that's a very interesting theme that gets developed throughout the 2010s. Yeah, yeah, that is a movie that I love. I don't revisit often because uh, you have to be in a right kind of mood to be able to take it all in. I love how the film's protagonist, when she starts to find empathy for the human beings that she's preying on, it totally messes her up. Mm -hmm. She's unable to cope. It, it completely skews her mission. Like she, She's very single-minded and she's there for a purpose, whatever that purpose is, but in the third act, she just kind of falls apart. Well, there's a great, there's a beautiful shot where she's coming down the stairs from this like hollowed out apartment that she's kind of like has as her base and she catches her reflection in the mirror and she stops and she stares at it in a way where you can see the turn of her character and throughout the rest of the film you often see her face reflected partially in mirrors of like cars and things like that and she doesn't look at it and it's at that moment where she sees I don't know if you could say that she sees the human in her or she sees herself in the human. And I guess that's kind of the point, right? And that moment, you don't have to say, oh, well, uh, now she likes humans. Now she doesn't want humans. Like, it's not like in the end of Venom where Venom's like, oh, I guess I like humans. Like, it's not, it's not <laughs> stupid like that. Uh -huh. it's, uh, it, it's more like you don't know exactly what causes the change but you know that being in experiences that humans experience has affected this character who begins the film basically like going to collect um, clams on the seashore and you know that's a powerful change and it's not presented melodramatically mm -hmm. the next film I'm gonna mention here I think is one that has some similar themes but are presented in a much different way and that is also from 2013 which was a good year oblivion came out if you're into that sort of thing snowpiercer under the skin pacific rim which is a personal favorite of my wife and i's coherence and her her right if somebody came from the the past and said show me your greatest science fiction films this is kind of what i'm thinking is i think you would have to show them her because i think one I think Spike Jones is probably one of the greatest melodramatic directors. And I don't think people think about melodrama in a positive sense very often. If you were from France, you might. But in, yeah. in North America, people take it a lot less seriously. Yeah, and I think that, like, and, and I won't get into the rest of his work, but I think that Her was a film that I didn't watch when it first came out because I knew I would love it, and I wanted to basically save it. And I ended up actually... Uh, going into somebody else's class when I was teaching at university because they were not able to attend and they what they were doing that day was screening her and so I ended up actually watching it with a group of university students and um, so it was a weird experience to watch this film in. but anyway it I think is one of those films that shows you the power that science fiction has to tell intimate stories and that 
you can have a realistic view of technology that isn't about whether or not you think that technology would exist in the way that it is depicted. Because I don't think the world that is depicted in her is a world that will, it would or could exist. But the world in which her takes place helps to amplify the themes that this film is exploring, which is about alienation, connection, forming bonds without sort of physical interaction. It's like almost like distant dating is a commentary on here. Yeah, it's about our relationship with technology Mm -hmm. in a big way and how we substitute physical intimacy with our with our devices in, mm-hmm. in some respects, and, and it come, then it comes back to you know the whole artificial human and what does it mean to be human? It interfaces, and I choose my words carefully here. <laughs> it interfaces with so many issues that science fiction is really all about. Mm-hmm. And, and you've just mentioned two Scarlett Johansson movies. You yep. know, props to her for oh, what yeah. she has done with her career in the last ten years. If I had different taste, maybe Lucy would be on this list, but right. it, but I don't, mm-hmm. and so it isn't. Um, but also props to her for being in a very successful film like yeah. that, too. Yeah, and she also tried it with Ghost in the Shell with not so much success. Yeah, I wouldn't. that's not going on any lists. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that's great, and I just wanted to point that one out as a, as a basically as a, as a kind of a beating heart of science fiction because things happen in that film which would in any other film be the climax there's like basically technological singularity is reached like all these kind of major futurist notions are achieved and surpassed in this film but they're treated like somebody who like uh went on a meditation retreat and so it it just it resonates with the themes about urban alienation and workplace anxiety and like over reliance on intimacy from technology, like all of these super current themes, and presented in a very sweet and understanding way, but with melodramatic purpose. All right, I'd like to hear what else is on your list, sir. Yeah, so I'll try to speed this up a little. Um, We've already talked about Ad Astra. It's on the list. <laughs> we have. We devoted a whole episode of this yeah. podcast to that. Yeah. And so uh, the next one I'm going to do is, uh, and we talked about this on that podcast too, 2014 Interstellar. Right. Now, I remember you said that the thing that Ad Astra had over Interstellar, and the part of the reason you really liked Ad Astra, was because its themes, the end of the film basically it was about how we need to look at ourselves to save ourselves. We can't rely on some outside faith. And that's one of the things I really loved about Interstellar was that in some ways it makes ourselves or our future selves our saviors Mm -hmm. uh, in a weird way. It's almost, it's a little bit like God, but it's not quite. I love the optimism of Interstellar. I love the... Uh, the the joyous sort of rapture of it. It's all part of that like Hans Zimmer score. Um, it's all about the way it's shot and uh, Christopher Nolan's huge scale. So I guess, although I, I understand what you're saying about the way uh, Ad Astra is more modern in some ways, I really loved Interstellar. I think that it's responsible for basically the late, like the late 2010s flourishing of basically epic scope space drama. Interstellar is. Yeah. Because of its success. Because of its success. And so, uh, because what's interesting is we're not actually as interested in space exploration 
as we used to be culturally, but we are very interested in space technology still. Like, um, we love watching rockets take off. We love all that stuff. We're not as excited about getting to Mars as I think people think we are, but there is this interesting relationship that we still have to space where it, the, every space movie has, there's the little blue marble line, and that's that's the where does humanity stand in the cosmos question. And what I, lo- what I think is important also about Interstellar is much in the way that Michael Crichton um, stories tend to like grab a hold of the cultural consciousness. Interstellar, I think, was one of the first films that really showed what a climate change Earth looks like and a situation in which like everyone's forced to eat this like genetically modified corn in drug conditions like all these little things which don't really have too much to do with the mission per se but they depict a kind of future that I think seemed very realistic to a lot of people and then the rest of the film reintroduces you to these like large almost old-fashioned ancient concepts like humanity's place in the cosmos and and sets it within this kind of like interesting odyssey-esque story sure i think i wrote that interstellar had more connection with themes of original star trek than anything in the star trek franchise in the past 10 years yeah definitely yeah like film or television definitely um yeah, and I'm interested in knowing, uh, now that we're talking about Christopher Nolan, whether you saw the trailer this week for Tenet. I mean, uh, yeah. I'm, uh, so I sat down with my wife and uh, saw that the Tenet trailer dropped, and I was like, well, I've been waiting. For, you know, I've been waiting for this. Uh, I don't know if I would call myself like a Christopher Nolan fanboy. It's just that I think he consistently produces amazing films. So if that makes me a fanboy, I guess it does. But... Um, I don't know what this story is going to be about, but I'm here either. for it. <laughs> yeah. I watched it too, and I was like, oh, it's kind of a spy movie, and it's kind of like a, like a Bond movie, which I think Nolan has been kind of making. Like, uh, Inception, Inception was kind of a Bond yeah. movie. Uh, so it's more like that, except it's also time traveling. Yeah. There's some time travel elements. But I don't know if I understand it, and I think it's okay. I trust that this is going to be interesting, and it's coming out in mid-July, so this is a summer blockbuster. Yeah, that is a taste of, I think, things to come. I think that we can anticipate that Christopher Nolan will continue to make science fiction films. Yeah, I like Dunkirk a lot, but I am excited for this even more. Well, and, I, and again, I, like, I think one of the directions things are going is science fiction is a realm where blockbusters can be better. And there used to be a point in which historical dramas were, were the realm of blockbusters, and this is like in the late, uh, early 90s. But things have changed a lot, and people want to... S- people either want it science fiction for the excitement, and that's where you get all your MCU stuff, or they want it because you can get a mass audience to come for the thrills, but hit them with a very nuanced story. And so, like, you know, we already talked about um, Ex Machina, but, like, the next on my list, I think, is the prime example of, like, can I swear on this? Sure. The best fucking blockbuster that's came out in the last 10 years, which is Mad Max Fury Road. <laughs> this is in my, in my chat about the best films of the last 10 years. This is the third time this film has come up. People were really moved by this film, and I am, I'm, I've got all the time in the world for it. It is a special movie. Yeah, and like when, when, we were talk, when you had mentioned up front that we were going to be talking about hard science fiction, I made that caveat because it is hard to actually say what Mad Max... Fury Road is like 
it's a science fiction movie, it's a post-apocalyptic movie, but like nothing, nothing that is happening in it requires prequels or like other things to like fill it out. Like the amazing thing about Mad Max Fury Road is that it is it has barely a plot, it has barely characters, it is like it is an exercise in kinetic cinema, and so it's on my list because science fiction as a genre gets mined for all sorts of things to make these blockbuster spectacles and what George Miller was able to do with this film is basically the complete opposite of the original Mad Max which is nothing like Fury Road I'm not always really sure what there is to say about Mad Max Fury Road and that's the because it is about what your eyes and your ears are seeing and I think that your listeners will pardon me if it sounds like I'm, I'm talking too much about like the um, social values economy. You can't separate it from the success of, of a film or the discourse around it. And like the way that this film treated its female characters, I mean, of course, there's a diverse number of opinions on how how that went. But anyway, if you're somebody who wanted to see a certain kind of thing on screen, then this movie gave you that a lot of movies don't give you. And like Charlize Theron's character in that film was like um like a, just amazing. And famously Tom Hardy had confronted George uh Miller and uh because he didn't think the film was working. And he's like this all just looks like it's going to be so stupid and famously ended up like retracting that statement because <laughs> yeah. because, because it was not because it because it, it was amazing and uh yeah so i've been sitting here t- telling saying a lot about how you can't say too much about it but there's just if you just look at this film i think you get a lot of, out of what people got excited about in 2010 science fiction it's about excitement right Okay, so I know you must have more on your list. Um, yeah. I want to leave a little space in the end yeah. for us and uh, get out, because we, we, before we got going, you just started. We were talking about how those are, in fact, science fiction. But uh, Yeah, so I'll give you like a fast rundown of the rest. Arrival is on there. Right, we've mentioned that. Yeah. Yep. Shin Godzilla right. is, is on my the list. Great, the greatest Godzilla movie of the, uh, of the decade. I had it uh, as an alternate to... Pacific Rim, which I felt is kind of a Godzilla movie. Yes, exactly. So if you haven't seen the Japanese Shin Godzilla that came out in 2016, just do it. It's the single, in my opinion, single greatest monster movie of the decade. Then we have Get Out, Annihilation, Us. Right. Now we've talked about Annihilation on this podcast, and Get Out and Us, both of which... I kind of think of as socially conscious horror movies, but we talked before I pressed the recording button, and we both agreed that they are science fiction too. Oh yeah, absolutely, and it was one of those things where we don't often think about how the genre tags on streaming services affect how you think about a movie. So it's like, is this a visually interesting action adventure? So everyone, of course, thinks of these films as horror films. I, I see them more in the vein of The Twilight Zone, which I would call like maybe dark sci-fi or dark parable sci-fi, where uh, elements of these stories are grounded in reality, but then there's always a central conceit that needs to be accepted, which adds a twist to the whole situation. And then what, in my mind, makes the film interesting or engaging is how that conceit 
uh, is shown to the audience and then how it develops the theme, basically. And Jordan, both of Jordan Peele's films, um, I think, do that in very different way and take very different approaches. And I think that he best captures how the 2010s end in terms of this sort of socially conscious um, genre picture. I think he does it better than anyone else, and I think that he will probably also have a hard time getting out of that if he wants to do something else. Science fiction tends to take a sociological turn when the countries in which those films are produced find themselves in times of social strife. So, uh, it's like punk. Yeah, it's like punk, but it's also like, um, this may be going to sound like a weird example, but like Logan's Run. Okay. Right? Which is social science fiction as well, but it's commenting on um, the social strife around like free love and birth control and like all of these things, which we'd, um, we don't think, I mean, we don't think too much about them in those terms anymore, but you know, social science, like a, whenever somebody remakes the body snatchers, it's usually because somebody feels like anxious about the way that society is going. That's true, and there have been a lot of remakes of that movie. Exactly. So I think that the um, the reemergence of social horror and social science fiction makes sense in a time when uh, when people there's a reorientation of social values and people are trying to figure out like what the lines are, what the stakes are, and sometimes like reevaluating their positions on topics that they hadn't had a change of opinion on in a long time. And science fiction films are very good guides to show you what the possible paths might be for a society that makes choices. Right. All right, Jesse, thank you so much. This has been really interesting. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks again to Jesse Hiltz for his thoughts on the science fiction films of the past decade. You can follow him on Twitter, where he recently posted his long list of the best sci-fi movies from year to year. I'm just catching up on all the holiday releases for the blog. You can find recent reviews there for Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, Cats, Bombshell, and Little Women. Thanks for listening to Flaw in the Iris, the film podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and write a review. You can also listen to the podcast on Stitcher. I'm reachable on Twitter at Flaw in the Iris if you'd like to talk about film or suggest a topic for the podcast. The theme music is by Mind's Eye. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you at the movies.